Our lives are always on the cusp of formation, always in process, ever-changing and becoming. Sometimes we find things coming together beautifully, those moments of freedom and hallelujah. And other times we find ourselves lost at sea, lost and fearful. The Reverend Forrest Church once wrote, when cast into the depths, to survive we must first let go of things that will not save us. Then we must reach out for the things that can. This is logical. When we're out at sea, when we're wondering how we're going to weather the storm, why would we cling to something that could not help us? That would be foolish, but we do it all the time, holding on to those stories and habits that give us a sense of control and stability and comfort. And yet sometimes the very things that we're holding on to are the things that are actually holding us back, preventing us from opening ourselves to that which can truly bring freedom. Over the last year, I've found a particular person coming to mind for me, along with a particular set of memories and a story that I've been telling myself for a long time. I haven't been thinking about this on purpose. It just keeps cropping up in the in-between moments of my life. I'll be walking to the car or doing the laundry, and then something will remind me of this. My father had one sibling with whom he shared both parents, his twin brother, Dan. Uncle Danny was one of two relatives who lived in the same city as us when I was growing up. He was an eccentric guy. But even as a kid, I knew there was something more going on. But I just couldn't quite put my finger on it. He came over at odd times. At one point, he had a person he called his chauffeur driving him around. He favored orange juice as a beverage, which seems strange for a grown man. And eventually, my parents explained that Uncle Danny was an alcoholic, that he'd lost his right to drive due to so many DUIs, and that there was definitely more than just orange juice in the glass. Uncle Danny's disease and his demons consumed him more and more with each passing year. He lied. He made lots of promises and broke them all. He called and said things that didn't make sense over the phone. I remember one time in middle school, he called to notify me that he'd made me the executor of his estate. Everything felt stressed and icky when he was around. You never knew what was going to happen next. And after a few incidents that sent up red flags that he could not be trusted with my brother and me, my parents cut off our contact with my uncle. They cut off the contact that us kids had with the uncle. And we felt safe and protected as a result. I hated Uncle Danny. 
I didn't tell any of my friends about him. I was afraid of what people would think, that his bad behavior would make someone think that there was something wrong with our family. And these feelings, the secret, became something that I held onto on some level to protect myself. And although I was no longer in personal contact with him, I still witnessed my uncle's downward spiral through my father, who became the only person still in relationship with him. The drinking continued, laws were violated, people got hurt, bad things happened, and Uncle Danny ended up in prison, where he became increasingly detached from reality. On my visits home from college, I dreaded picking up the phone and hearing the voice at the other end announcing a call from the correctional facility. Besides just being creepy, it meant that my dad was going to be sent into another tailspin, heading down another rabbit hole of delusions and half-truths in his effort to somehow try and be helpful to rescue his brother to make things right. And then when I was in my early 20s, Uncle Danny died alone in prison. My dad couldn't save him. And when he died, I'll admit that among my many feelings was a great relief. He was physically gone, but these feelings remained. <clears throat> and I had grown accustomed to holding the story in a particular way keeping my hand clamped around particular reels of memories, holding on to the anger, the anger about the pain and heartache and chaos that his actions created, and also holding on to this kind of nebulous fear and shame that if people found out about him, something bad would happen. And then when something would remind me of him, I would either keep my hand firmly closed to avoid dealing with it, or I would take a peek, revisiting the memories and the anger and the fear for a time, but always in the same way. And the way that I would revisit these feelings had this quality of feeding them and strengthening them. It was as though these memories of and the anger were this little fire burning, and each time I checked in on it, I would find that the fire had become more dim or it had changed its form slightly and so I would rebuild the fire, reinforcing its familiar shape and then blow on the embers to keep it burning in that particular familiar way. And over the course of time, checking in on these memories and this anger, rebuilding and stoking the fire even though it was in my own hand, it had this strange kind of satisfaction to it, even a sort of pleasure that's hard to describe. There wasn't any part of me that was glad that those painful events transpired. However, as time passed, I grew quite comfortable revisiting Uncle Danny's unequivocal wrongness. This from our reading this morning. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, 
to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll your tongue, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. Part of what I've begun to realize over the last year is that holding and feeding these memories in this way <clears throat> has been slowly hurting me. There is an illusion that these feelings are well contained and that they belong to a chapter of my life that finished when Danny died over 10 years ago. And yet they're coming up for me as life continues unfolding as I see my daughter becoming an age that I can remember being myself, as I realize that I'm now the age that my parents were when they were raising me, and I can feel these memories and these patterns shaping my parenting, my family dynamics, and I see that they're feeding fear, they're inhibiting closeness, and keeping me stuck. I'm about to switch gears here. <clears throat> I've learned something about the ways that we get stuck from a very unlikely source. Monkeys, which are our cousins in the animal world. So if you'll indulge me for a moment, I'd like to share a fact about monkeys with you by sharing with you the banana method. This is a concept that I came across in a reading by Reverend Scott Taylor that's a part of the Wellspring Spiritual Deepening Program, which is a great program we have here at church. And the banana method is a brilliantly simple technique that park rangers in Africa have devised for catching monkeys. One of the park rangers' tasks is tagging and administering medicine to monkeys and in an effort to avoid injuring the monkeys with guns or with darts, the rangers employ this banana method instead. So you take a fairly large and heavy plexiglass box and you drill a hole into the side of it, a hole that's just big enough for a monkey to squeeze its hand through. And then inside the box you place a banana. And inevitably the monkey will see the banana through the plexiglass and will come down from the tree to get it. And by straightening out its fingers, the monkey can easily get its hand through the hole and grab a hold of the banana. But once the monkey makes a fist with the banana in it, there is no way for it to pull its hand back out. As long as the monkey refuses to let go of the banana, the monkey is stuck. And for some reason having to do with complex issues around adaptation and instinct, monkeys, virtually every one of them, have a terrible time letting go. <laughs> I can see this doesn't resonate at all. Freedom is right there if the monkey would just loosen its grip. But they don't. And it's not even their entire body that's stuck. It's just actually this one small part of their body, the hand. 
But because that one small part, the hand gripping the banana, is not able to let go, the box ends up functioning as a cage that is keeping the monkey imprisoned. I cringe with recognition here. We will keep an iron grasp on things for years and years, anger and resentment and fear, not realizing that what we are holding on to is keeping us spiritually and emotionally imprisoned. If only we could figure out how to let go, we could find our freedom. Figuring out how to let go, how to forgive, it is not easy. If it were easy, forgiveness would not be a focal point of the world's major religious traditions. When someone hurts us, we have a right to be angry. However, to paraphrase my colleague Christine Robinson, forgiveness is the choice to stop exercising that right to be angry. Forgiveness is a process of letting go of our anger in order to nourish health and wholeness. And it doesn't mean pretending that it didn't happen or saying that what happened didn't really matter. Forgiveness doesn't even require the participation of the other person or people involved. We can stop exercising our right to be angry on our own. And the process begins with acknowledging that we have been hurt, fully and deeply acknowledging this, recognizing the hurt to ourselves and understanding which part of us has been hurt. And next, we either hear or imagine the other person's side, holding our hearts open as, as open as we possibly can to that other person's reality and motivations. This can be incredibly difficult and painful. Uh, it can be very helpful to be in uh, relationship with a mental health professional, with the people closest to you. It need not be undertaken alone. Robinson reminds us that forgiveness is a process, one that we can't totally control, but one that we can be open to. It's loosening the grip on the banana, one little movement at a time. And when we find ourselves at a point where we just don't know how to do it, we stay committed to being on this path and to reaching out for help. In my own journey, I was ready for this. This had been waiting for me, shining its lights in the corner of my subconscious. And I began wondering more and more about my uncle's early life. What happened to him? He and my father were twins, yet their lives unfolded so differently. My father was good looking and successful in sports and in school. My uncle was pale, awkward, and struggled. My father was straight. My uncle was gay. My father was the apple of their mother's eye, the golden child. My uncle bore the brunt of their father's rage. Danny was an outsider in nearly every arena of his life, beginning with his own family. When he was a boy, I wonder who showed him love 
I wonder how he learned that he mattered. I wonder when he felt safe. And I started feeling this feeling, this compassion. I can only imagine the hurt that he was coping with through his drinking, his lies, his empty promises, his acting out. And I knew that this compassion was the right thing, that I was headed in the right direction, but honestly, it was much less comfortable. I felt much more vulnerable in this than in my old patterns. But I knew that this is what I needed to open myself to and that I couldn't do it until I let go of the anger. So I had this feeling that I might explore this in an upcoming sermon. <laughs> and that would involve talking with my dad. And it's generally good practice in ministry to check with your family before sharing parts of their life story up here. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> I just picked up the phone. I just did it. I, I asked his permission. And to tell you the truth, I would have been content with just a sort of a verbal rubber stamp and then to hang up the phone. But instead, we had a conversation. We had a conversation about this thing that my whole family knows about, but we never talk about. This is probably my father's greatest demon. I'm sure it is. It's one that visits him every day. And he said, you know, I, I never really knew what your experience of everything was. And then we talked about guilt and regrets and fears, and I could feel my grip on these memories loosening, and I could see that that fire of my anger was losing its force, that the tight loops of the same old stories were getting interrupted. And I'm excited that we have a plan to talk again soon. Something got opened up. And this was not an experience of letting go through the sheer force of my own individual will. If we could let go of what's eating us alive by simply trying really hard and knowing lots of stuff, you know that we would all be teaching master classes. <laughs> Instead, my experience was one of trusting this undefined, recurring sense that it was time. And I had no idea how to do it, but it was time to let go that this corner of my heart was going to keep calcifying and shrinking, impacting the way that I show up in other relationships that I deeply care about, unless I open myself to letting go. And that this letting go was something that happened in relationship. When this first loosening of the grip came, it came in the form of a relational exchange in which I was participating, but I was not controlling it or orchestrating it. And to me, this is where life-giving mystery lives. This is how grace and love move. This is how the holy moves in the world. I don't understand it, but I am committed to trusting it. Trusting that when I do what I can to open my hands and open my heart, stepping out of isolation and reaching out to other people, trusting that the reality of life's constant changing offers great hope that freedom awaits 
There are no guarantees, but I don't want to live any other way. And I come to church to remember this and to participate in this, this exchange that opens us up and saves our lives over and over. When cast into the depths, to survive, we must first let go of things that will not save us. And then we must reach out for the things that can. May we loosen our grip, open up our hands and our hearts, and reach out for each other. May it be so. Amen.